Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to church at home. For the next couple of weeks, it looks like we are going to be doing this again, uh, just because of the number of COVID cases at the moment and just the realities of the third wave. We just want to be a little bit careful, so we've closed our Sunday in-person gatherings for now. But hopefully that'll just be two or three weeks and we can be back in person at the Trinity Space on Gordon Road. Looking forward to that. But just this morning as uh, we carry on with our Eat This Book series, please take this seriously, open your hearts, put away distractions and fully engage and be present in what we're doing right now. I also want to say a happy, happy Father's Day to the dads of Harbour City. Uh, we live in a country and in a world where there is so much fatherlessness and so many uh, fathers who are not involved in the lives of their family and kids. And to the dads in this church who are praying for your kids, loving them, serving them, setting them an example, coaching them, raising them up in the ways of the Lord, we just want to celebrate you and say you are absolute heroes. And yeah, we pray for you this morning that God would give you the grace to do what he has called you to do in your homes and with your kids. Lastly, I've got one notice before we get into today's message, and that is that this Wednesday night at 7 p.m., we're going to have one of our equip nights. It's going to be called Bible 101. As part of our Eat This Book series, we wanted to help you with some of the basics around what the Bible is and how to read it and some things you might not know about the scriptures and the resources and tools that are out there for you, which we often don't talk about on a Sunday or in life group. They're often just assumed and they're those kind of things that you might not know that you don't know. So in the video, I actually am going to say something like, this is the advice I wish I had been given when I was new to Christianity and new to the Bible. Because if I'd known some of these things, I could have saved myself years and it could have really helped me to just know God better and engage with the scriptures for myself. So join us this week, Wednesday, 7 p.m. on YouTube. Uh, there's a YouTube premiere set up, so it will start right at 7. And we want to learn and grow together and be equipped to be in the scriptures for ourselves as a church. But today we're carrying on with week three of our Eat This Book series. And really my goal tonight is to answer the question, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? But this is about a lot more than just definitions. And obviously definitions are helpful. But um, this question is about more than just being able to categorize the Bible and to put it into a neat little box and be able to put it on a shelf and say, okay, that's what it is. I've got it now. And the reason I say that is this topic is really about why, why we should trust that the Bible is God's word, why we should trust that the Bible is God's word, not just any book, but God's word. Because believing the right things about the Bible is one thing. And I really don't assume, just as you watch this today, you know, as we kind of do church at home, that everyone believes the same thing about the Bible, that everyone even believes that the Bible is God's word. But believing is the start. Believing and trusting in it. Ha having faith that these are God's words to us, to show us about life and salvation in Him. That's another next step in the journey. And then living a life of submission. Submitting your life to God's teachings and His words and ways as an authority over us. E even the bits we don't particularly like. Even the bits we find difficult. Even the bits that kind of are jarring or abrasive with our culture. Those are all very, very different things. So tonight we're going to look at those ideas a bit. And I, I want to help you to know what the Bible is. And hopefully to help you to trust or to grow in trust in the scriptures for yourself and to believe that this book really is God's word to us. 
Now in 2006, a good old South African band named Just Ginger released a song called What He Means. I'm sure as I bring that up, some of you, you've got the, the lyrics going in your mind, you've got the tune playing again, because this was a really big hit and a really catchy song. Now I'm not going to sing it for you, I don't want to put you through that. But the, the main chorus of the song went like this. Peace, love, more tolerance, faith, hope, trust in the same God in whose name we die for, take an innocent life for. That's not what he means. And it doesn't matter what book you read. I'm sure some of you remember that. Raise your hands if you do. It was a really catchy song. And I remember I'd like listen to it in the car or be playing at home or the music video would be on or something. And it's just going in your head and you're singing it passionately because it's fun. And I had to catch myself sometimes and say, hold on, this is a fun song, but you don't actually believe what it says, Grant. You don't believe the lyrics of the song. And now listen, there's a lot that we can affirm and like believe in or, or agree with in this song. I mean, parts of it, peace, love, tolerance, faith, hope, trust. That sounds like it could almost be lifted from the New Testament, from Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, or one of those kind of lists that we see in Scripture. But alongside that, there's also a pretty strong subversive theology in this song that doesn't line up with traditional or orthodox Christianity, and that also doesn't line up with the theological review, uh, views of many other religions. And the irony that I hope you catch in this song is that Aunt Matthews, the lead singer, is rejecting certain ways of believing in God or practicing your faith as incorrect. And he's singing his own theology, his view about life and God and religion and what those things are really all about. And he even claims in the song to know God's will, not that he tells us how he knows it, because he sings, that's not what he means. He seems to have some insider view into what God's will is and isn't. So in the song, Matthews is preaching. And more than just preaching, he's correcting what he believes are false beliefs and practices. And he's trying to convert us to his way of seeing the world and God and religion and everything else. But on what authority? What authority does Matthews have, or, or where does that authority come from? Where does he get these views from? How does he know what God's will really is? And what gives him the authority to sing and tell you and I which ways are right or wrong? And then right at the end of the chorus, there's almost this throwaway line, but it's probably the biggest bombshell of the song. He sings and says, it doesn't matter what book you read. It doesn't matter what book you read. He believes that it doesn't matter which holy book, which religious book or, or inspirational book you read and put your trust or your faith in. You know, whether it's in the words of the Bible or in the Bhagavad Gita or the Book of Mormon, Tripitaka or the Upanishads or, or some other book that you draw inspiration and meaning from. And he's also saying in the song that it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus, which is the biggest thing for us as the church and as Christians. He says, as long as you hold to the values of this song, the rest doesn't matter. It, it's these values that matter the most. And I hope you see that these are big, weighty theological statements that are coming to us with the backing of some feel-good radio music. And the irony again is that Matthews is saying that he knows the way. He knows what we should believe and do and that he knows God's will which are all things that Christians throughout the years have always believed that we learn and find in the Bible, in the scriptures. 
Now, maybe you're sitting there going, sheesh, Grant, you're getting a bit philosophical for a Sunday morning. It's just a song, Brew. Sheesh, relax. You're obviously no fun to go to a concert with. And you would be right. I'm a real buzzkill. You wouldn't have any fun with me. But the reason I wanted to raise this is obviously this is relevant to the series we're in. But this is a song probably all of us heard multiple times, playing at home on the car or on TV or whatever it was, that we sang along to. And it was preaching a strong message. It was preaching a strong theology into our culture, into our cars and homes, that the Bible doesn't show us the way to God, the, the only way to God, the, the truth of God or the way of salvation. That the Bible isn't unique, that it's just one of a number of other books, holy books, different spiritual inspirational books about God and meaning and purpose and salvation. But because it's not unique, it's therefore not more valuable or important than them. And obviously, that's not our view as this church, as Harbour City. You know, we're doing a series on the scriptures, for goodness sake. And it's also not the view that the scriptures have of themselves or that Christians and Christianity throughout the millennia have had. That's a completely different view to what we find in scriptures and traditional Christianity. So what is the Bible? And more than that, why should we believe that it's unique and trust that it really is God's word? John Mark Comer's got a definition of the Bible, which I really like. He says, the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, that together tell a unified story, which leads us to Jesus. Maybe just as a, an interesting fact, this could be one of those kind of chappies rapper facts. The Bible actually never refers to itself as the Bible. The word Bible comes from the Greek word biblia, which means the books. But somewhere along the line, we've started to think of the Bible as the book, which it's not. The Bible is not a book. It's actually 66 books put together into one big spiritual library. Originally, the Bible didn't come in this kind of shape or form. It was 66 papyrus scrolls written by about 40 different authors over about a 1,500-year period, and they were writing from Asia and Europe and Africa. So the Bible is a book which is a library. It's made up of a bunch of different styles and literary genres, which is why some of the books that you read in the Bible are harder to engage with than others, and some seem so strange and difficult. Some of you have read Daniel or uh, Revelation recently would know that for sure. Some of you have tried to work through Leviticus or Ezekiel would know that for sure too. And I guess in a sense, this, this library of 66 books is all stuck together. It's kind of like if you went to Exclusive Books or to the SBCA secondhand bookstore and you bought some of the books you really want to read and then you stuck them together and made a super book. And you took a sci-fi novel and then a cookbook and then a chemistry textbook, then a history book, and you ended off with one of those really nice coffee tables filled with amazing photography of people from around the world. So you made your super book and you put it down and you started to read. There would be some significant segues as you went from sci-fi novel to cookbook to chemistry textbook to history book to like beautiful coffee table photo book because each of them are so, so different. And it's the same as we come into the world of the Bible. You know, each of these 66 books are written with different intents and purposes, but they're all pointing us to God and they're all helping us to locate ourselves inside of his story. So the Bible is not only a book filled with books, but it's also a story filled with stories. If you've read through the Bible before, you would know that it includes 
hundreds, probably more, maybe thousands of stories of different characters in different places from different backgrounds, like literally within this 1500 year plus period of time. And that are all part of one larger story, which is the story of God and the saving work of God throughout history. So the Bible is no ordinary book. And as we engage with the Bible, it's also engaging with us. We're reading about the story of God, but at the same time, we're being invited and drawn into the story for ourselves, invited to play a part in what God is doing in the world and to be one of the characters in his story. So the Bible is unique. It's also not only the best-selling book of all time and the most translated book of all time and the most read book of all time. It's probably also the most debated book of all time. And still around the world, there are places where reading the Bible or owning a Bible can cost you your life. There are over 100 million copies of the Bible printed every year. Currently, there are about 6 billion print versions of the Bible in existence in our world. That's almost enough for every person in the world today. And that's not including digital versions, which you can get online through a website, through an app. It's also the best-selling book again and again, year after year after year for all time. So this is not just a normal book. But where did the Bible come from? I think that's one of the big questions people are thinking. And I've decided today, and this is a big decision, to leave out some of the historical and archaeological proofs about the reliability of the Bible, just because it takes up so much time. And I really haven't met too many people that for them, their, their faith in Jesus or, or potential to believe in him has been tripped up by textual criticism or archaeological findings with these obscure historical references in the Bible. But if that's you, you can go on our website. We've got a blog post out called Bible 101, which has got a bunch of different references about the Bible, some of the things we're talking about today, which hopefully will help you to answer those questions or will at least help you to get more context and understanding around them. But in my experience instead, it seemed that one of the big questions for people around the Bible is how this book of 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years, how that got put together. Now, it's important to say that we don't just believe that the Bible was zapped into existence, that it descended from heaven, that it just appeared like with a black leather cover and those beautiful ribbons that hang out the side. That's not true. But if it's not, and I don't think most of us think that, but maybe we just passively start to slip into that way of thinking. If we don't believe that, then where does it come from? Well, let's start with the Old Testament. And if you didn't know this, the Bible is made of two parts. The Old Testament was written before Jesus' birth, and it's made up of 39 books. And we do see something of a zap moment here in the scriptures. In fact, the first words written and recorded as the words of God are the Ten Commandments, which were written by God himself. We see this in Exodus 31 verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Now again, we don't believe that the whole Bible was just zapped into existence or that God wrote it all and just gave it to us. But we do believe that about these words. And then later, very interestingly, we read this, Deuteronomy 31. After Moses finished writing in a book, after Moses finished writing in a book, the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. 
Now, we know from comments in other parts of the Bible that Moses is just regarded as the author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are called the Torah or the Law. But what is so interesting is that these words written by Moses that we have in our Bibles today, you can literally read them right now, that they were placed next to those stone tablets that were inscribed by the finger of God here in Deuteronomy 30. One, that they were put next to each other and that they were held with equal value both as the word of God to his people. And that's really important for us in terms of how we understand what the Bible is and how it came about and how we've got it in the form that we do today. So let's stay here for a second. In 2 Peter 1 verse 20 and 21 it says, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is that although God might have inscribed the Ten Commandments on stone with his very finger, that the rest of Scripture were written by people who spoke for God or from God as they were led by and inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit. And these 40-ish writers of the Bible's books were very different from one another. Parts of the Bible were written by kings. Think of David and others. Some were written by farmers, fishermen, a tent maker, even homeless prophets walking through the desert, preaching from city to city and town to town. Luke the doctor wrote part of it. We've got professional scribes, even vocational musicians like professional band members who wrote down their songs and their poems to help us to see the glory of God and to express our emotions and prayers to him. The Bible is even written by a bunch of pastors. Now, as we think about that, consider two of the authors, Moses and John. Moses was an Egyptian prince turned shepherd, turned revolutionary, who compiled the book of Genesis somewhere around 1300 BC in the Sinai wilderness or desert. And then John, Jesus' best friend, at least self-proclaimed, was a fisherman turned apostle who wrote the book of Revelation in 95 AD from the Isle of Patmos. And I love that. Almost a 1400 year difference in time between those two men writing their books But here we see telling the same story of God. The Spirit, when he wrote the scriptures, did not bypass each individual personality or or where they lived, the context of where they lived, their education, their personality type, their vocabulary or writing style. All of those things were part of the process. But the Spirit used each individual author's unique voice and time to help to write this library of scripture. So as we come to read the Bible... We're actually coming to a symphony where each human author is a different instrument playing a different part of this orchestra. So that's the Old Testament. Let's talk about the New Testament for a second. This is the second part of the Bible made up of 27 books that were all written after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. Now what would cause authors to write books and then for them to decide that these were on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures and then include them in the Bible as equally authoritative and from God. Well firstly I think we need to understand like I said earlier that the primary theme of the scriptures is the story of God's saving work throughout history. That's the whole track and what's going on through the Old Testament. And the Old Testament closes actually 400 years before the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And it closes with this expectation of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to come and be relieved. 
And Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, begins with the birth of Jesus. Enter the Messiah. Enter the Savior. Secondly, both Peter and Paul, two of the apostles, they write in their letters and claim an authority for the New Testament writings of the apostles and also place their writings on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. In 2 Peter 3 verse 2 it says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. This is the Old Testament. And the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. 2 Peter 3 verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. And it seems here that already, just a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, that the writings of the apostles are being viewed as scripture and as the very word of God. Personally, one of the things I like about that second verse there is that Peter's just honest about the fact that some parts of Scripture are hard to understand. Some of them you need to do some research. You need to do some study. You need to chat to a friend or a leader and say, what is going on here? Because this is hard to wrestle with. I just love that he puts that in there and he says, hey, some people have struggled with Paul's writings and I get it. I'm pastoring people that don't understand what's going on there too. So where did these 27 New Testament books come from? How were they chosen and finalized? Well, most of the books that we find in the New Testament were written by the apostles, by by the people who'd been with Jesus, seen Jesus, heard his teachings, been authorized by him throughout scripture. Mark was not one of the apostles, but his gospel has been put in there or authorized because he spent so much time with Peter. So really the gospel of Mark is Peter's gospel. And then the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are uh, Paul's gospels because Luke traveled so much with Paul. And it's similar with some of the other books of the New Testament too. But you might not know that many other letters and books were left out of the New Testament canon and left out of the Bible that I've held up a bunch today. And this was a really intentional decision. The guys who finalized what the New Testament scriptures would be and joined them with the Old Testament scriptures knew the importance of this moment. And they left out some other books because they weren't viewed as inspired. You know, they might have been seen as helpful, but they weren't seen as inspired by the Spirit of God. Or because they weren't written by someone so close to Jesus. Uh, they weren't written by an apostle or an eyewitness or, or someone who had that kind of authority and experience. Or thirdly, maybe they just didn't add anything new to the canon. The things that that letter or book was saying were already in there. A few years ago, I read a 15-chapter book called The Didache. Now, that comes from the first century, somewhere in the mid to late first century. And it's a Christian book, a short book, written to discuss Christian ethics and baptism and communion and church organization, stuff that nerds like me enjoy to read. And it was interesting and helpful to read. It was a good Christian book written just decades after Jesus' death. But when the final script, uh, canon was put together, the Didache was left out. It wasn't included in the canon of the Bible. Finally, what happened is in 397 AD, 
from the Council of Carthage, churches from the western part of the Mediterranean got together. This is from different types of denominations and networks and backgrounds. They came together and prayerfully accepted the 27 New Testament books that had already been widely used by the church for centuries now as the final canon of the New Testament. And probably two years ago, I actually got to go to Carthage. I got to go to the place where this council happened and see the ruins of the church building and go through the kind of the vestry and the baptismal font and all of those things. And just think of how history had been made in that place. How in that place they had decided that actually the, the book that has shaped the world more than any other, that actually this would be what the New Testament canon would be. It was absolutely incredible. But beyond all of this, one of the reasons that I believe we can hold on to the reliability of the New Testament is that it was circulated during the lifetime of its characters, the cities and crowds that it talked about. You can imagine this, if Paul, Peter, John, Luke, others had lied in their letters and their books, there were enough people around to say, I was there, what you're saying is not true, that's absolute rubbish. And the church would have been a laughing stock, they, they would have been laughing stocks, those letters wouldn't have been kept for 2,000 years. The Bible would have never gained traction in those cities and in that time. And the church would have been a laughing stock. It would never have made it to a second or third generation. And that means that you today, you know, you can argue with and you can dislike Jesus' teachings. You can reject the Christian view of salvation, that it's through Christ alone. You know, you can fight with the Christian belief that Jesus was God incarnate. I understand that. But we can't argue that Jesus was a historical figure. And that what is recorded in the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament actually happened. I'm talking the miracles, the teachings, the healings, all of those things. Because if they hadn't happened, these letters would have been rejected and the New Testament would have never come together. So how can I trust that the Bible is really God's word? Trust is an interesting word, isn't it? Trust is a firm belief in the reliability, truth, or ability of someone or something. And trust is built over time. Trust isn't something that you get instantly. Trust comes from time and experience and gut feelings and the endorsement of someone that you trust or value or love. And there are a lot of arguments that you can look into for why we can trust that the Bible is God's word. There's scholarly defenses that have been written over the centuries. There's archaeology that confirms the historical claims and dates and facts that the Bible speaks about. There are old Bible manuscripts that prove that the Bible is reliable and hasn't changed over time. I, personally, I think the biblical prophecies just point to a supernatural author because, for instance, in Micah 5, verse 2, centuries before Jesus' birth, we're told we, the Messiah would be born. In Isaiah 7, we're told that he would be born to a virgin. In Psalm 34 and Isaiah 53, we're told how he would die. And if you read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, it's hard to deny that this prophecy is so clear about the fact that the way Jesus died and the character of these prophecies written thousands of years before him are pointing to him. And we could go on and on and on. For me personally, though, I think three things have impacted me and my faith and trust in the Bible. The first is that I know a lot of people whose lives have been changed by believing that the truths of the Bible are true. As they've responded to God through what his word says, that they found freedom and forgiveness and healing and their lives have changed. And there are also many testimonies of people throughout the centuries and millennia who have experienced that too. Secondly, I trust that the Bible is the word of God because of really an inward 
confirmation by the Holy Spirit. As I've read the scriptures, prayerfully thinking about them, it's like the Spirit is saying, this is God's book. These words are true. This is the way of salvation. This is the way to Jesus. Michael Bird in his book of Evangelical Theology says, We know the Bible is God's word, not because we have evidence that demands a verdict or because any church council said so, but on account of the witness of the Holy Spirit to our own spirit that we are reading the words of a holy God through Holy Scripture. All other evidence from apologetics or historical theology, though having a valid place, is secondary to the work of the Holy Spirit in authoring and authenticating Scripture. But I think probably most convincingly for me has been that the Bible has helped me to make sense of myself and this world better than any other philosophy, religion, or ideology that I've explored. C.S. Lewis, I think, puts it best when he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Christianity and the, the Christian scriptures help us to understand this world, help us to understand what's going on around us, help us to understand ourselves and our struggles. As we go through the scriptures, it makes sense of our lives and our world. Let me end with this. I believe that the Bible is God's word because Jesus was a big Bible guy. Jesus was a teacher of the scriptures. We see this. I mean, we think of all the different things Jesus did. We think of him healing and doing miracles and casting out demons and eating around tables and all of those things. Sometimes we can forget that he was a teacher of the Bible. Jesus was a big Bible guy. And Jesus probably, as I've said already in this series, would have memorized huge chunks of the Old Testament, if not the whole thing. He would have known Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the first five books, off by heart. But it seems that he's always quoting from different parts of the scriptures as he preaches, as he's asked questions, as he debates with people, as he's attacked by people. It just seems that the scriptures are in him and they are the authority that he has for the things that he's saying and for the points he's making. And there's quite a huge irony to this. I, I hope you've thought about this before, but if not, think about this now. Jesus was God in the flesh come into our world, and he's coming and he's preaching and teaching to his creation, to people like you and I. And when he teaches and when he answers people's questions, he doesn't just speak on his own authority. He quotes scripture as an authority for the points that he's making. You know, he quotes the words previously written down by Moses or David or others under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but he quotes their words written in the scriptures as the authority for the points that he's making, which shows us that God endorses the Bible, that it is his book and it is his gift to us. This is not just man's idea, but it also shows us the authority and the importance of these words. If Jesus answered questions and preached messages based on this book, then this book must be important to you and to I. So what does Jesus have to say specifically about the Bible? Well, in Matthew 5, we read this. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. What we see here is that if we worship and follow Jesus as God, then we need to accept the Bible as the word of God. 
If you and I are disciples of Jesus wanting to follow him and honor him with our lives, then we need to really hold to the Bible as important. The, the Bible needs to play a central role in our lives and discipleship if we want to be like Jesus and live like him. You see, we trust in the Bible because we trust in Jesus. And we submit ourselves to the teaching of the Bible because it is Jesus' teaching. And we don't just believe that the Bible is inspired and has authority over us because it says so. No, we believe that because he says so. Let me end with verse 19 of Matthew 5. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If we take the Bible seriously, if we take its teaching seriously, devoting ourselves to practicing what it says and helping others to do the same thing too, then when God looks at you, he will call you great. You will be seen as great in his kingdom. Which means the scriptures are clearly very, very important. So I want to ask you, do do you passionately obey the Bible? Do you intentionally try to help others to learn it and understand it for themselves? And if you answered yes to either of those questions, then God calls you great. God calls you great. So what is the Bible? The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. In the scriptures, what we find is a way to God through Jesus, that the way of salvation is through Jesus, that the way to a new life and forgiveness is through Jesus, and that ultimately every road that we go down looking for satisfaction, whatever that might be, that road is a dead end Because what we're looking for is ultimately only found in Him. Harbor City, we want to eat this book. We want to be a Bible people. We want to be centered around the Bible. We want to be filled with the Bible. We want to ooze the Bible. Not because we're making something of the Bible that we shouldn't. But because we're making of the Bible what Jesus called us to. Jesus was a Bible guy. He loved the Bible. He he gave the Bible authority. He called us to give ourselves to this book. So would you? Would you eat this book? Would you let it shape you and form you and change you and challenge you and encourage you? Would you eat it prayerfully, slowly, thoughtfully, asking God to speak to you, to lead you, to grow you and to change you? And as you do that, I believe you'll come into more and more of a knowledge of God and a fuller life in Him. Amen.